0: Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Welcome. Good evening. and Thank you for joining us for this incredible event with and Mengisay about The Shadow King, which is a novel set in Ethiopia 1935. With the threat of Mussolini's army looming, recently orphaned, Hirut struggles to adapt to her new life as maid. Her new employer, Kidane, an officer in Emperor Haile Selassie's army, rushes to mobilize his strongest men before the Italians invade. The Shadow King is a powerful exploration of female power and what it means to be a woman at war. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce the incredible Marza Mengiste, who's going to be talking to us about this wonderful, wonderful novel, this very deeply affecting novel, uh, the way that it was crafted uh, over a long, long, wonderful period of time. And um, yes, welcome, Marza. How are you doing? Thank you. It's good to be here. It's really good. Thank you. I would love to... um, to start by just asking you to introduce the book a little bit and to tell us a bit about your, your personal and your family connection to this this incredible story. Yeah, well, you know, you gave a, a brief overview of the
1: book, but, it, I mean, in essence, the, the book is... Uh, set in 1935, and it, 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 the backdrop is Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in an attempt to colonize the country. I've always been interested in this war, partly because it, this war, um, this conflict with Italy, and also the conflict that preceded it, which was 40 years back, the first time Italy tried to colonize Ethiopia, these were stories that I grew up on uh, living in Ethiopia any, every, every family gathering I had, the, the, there was some way that this war was mentioned. Either a friend of my grandfather's would walk into the house and somebody would say, oh, you know, he was a commander of this army or he did this at this time. On my father's side, there were men who fought, his brothers fought. And I, I just, I knew this story. Uh, it, was, it wasn't just history, it was family it was my family who went to the front lines. Um, so if you can imagine that this was uh, 1935, Ethiopia was not militarily advanced uh, and they were confronting one of the most technologically advanced militaries in, in the world at that time and Ethiopia five years later won. They defeated them you know, with outdated rifles and spears. And it was an illogical win in many cases. And that was also something that captured my child's imagination. How was that possible? How could this happen? Um, I grew up being very proud of this history, uh, but I grew up with that question of how did they do it? You know, um, I became interested in trying to find out more about this. And from that interest, you know, came this book. But you know, as you, as I think you, you know, I thought I was researching and locating the stories of the men who fought in my family, uh, from my, from my father's side, from, from you know, my mother's side. That's, those are the stories that I heard. I didn't realize until much later in the research that women were there, not only um, as caregivers but as women, as soldiers. And and then much, much, much later, once I had found out some information which completely turned the book around and I began to rewrite this book, Centering Women, it wasn't until I was almost done with that that my mother casually mentioned to me, "Uh, don't you remember your great-grandmother also fought in this? And I had had no idea. No one had ever told me that. Um, And my mother, I had asked her at some point, why didn't you tell me? You could have saved me years of research if I knew my great-grandmother had fought and I met her before she passed away. And my mother said, well, you never asked. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also very telling for me that we don't automatically assume that there are voids in the history that we hear. We don't just make that assumption when we're listening to people tell stories, when we're reading history books, we don't assume that there are voids. And I, I really think that has to be a natural assumption for every single person who hears any part of history.
0: And that's one of the reasons why I love historical fiction so much, because you know the history that you learn at school, it's, it's very scripted, it's very, I suppose, intentional for what you're supposed to learn. Um, and we're never really as school children we're not really instructed to look for those gaps or or question why there are there are people who aren't mentioned in this chapter over the people who are and historical fiction work like your book it invites us to look beyond what we've kind of already been told or what we expect to be the complete picture um and something that I found, really, really interesting in The Shadow King is the way that you you challenge us to rethink not only the idea of who's missing from history, but the idea, the way that we celebrate history as well, and how we celebrate people who we might consider to be um, war heroes. Uh, And you bring to the centre these women who were warriors in this period. And on first glance, it might it might feel like what you're saying to us is we have to also celebrate these women but on the other side of the coin you've got this 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 other story you know you've got this other way that we need to be we need to be acknowledging the cost of 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 participating in war Mm -hmm. that includes women warriors as well who weren't blemish free um and i was just wondering um if if there is a message you're trying to tell us as readers with this hidden history in this book? Uh,
1: Yeah, you know, now is a good time. Maybe we can bring up one of the images that we have for this talk. Um, This is something that I found, uh, you know, during research. It's an image that's readily available online. And, you know, in terms of the way that it celebrates, on one hand, it celebrates women. You know, this is a photograph that clearly centers women. You see them with, their, with the guns. Um, these women existed. They, they some, I think most of them have been identified. They fought in the war. Um, but then there is this other reality. And when I look at this image, one of the things that I see here is uh, speaking of gaps and voids. I mean, I see the metaphorical void that is right behind them two of them in the back there. And if I were uh, you know, looking at this photograph as a writer, I would say, what's in that space that hasn't been explored yet? What is the story inside that dark spot that we haven't looked at yet? Maybe they don't want to look at it either. Their back is turned. Um, and so I I think that the reality of women of, of women in war is that they were still moving within a patriarchal masculine endeavor as women. And that was a, a dichotomy that um, I wanted to explore because there were some moments in history that were clearly just erased. Where you know we can talk about forgotten parts of history, but then what we also need to understand that there's a difference between something that's forgotten and something that has been so erased that there is a void and we don't even know that it had ever existed. It's not, there's nothing to remember, to forget. And um, when I look at this, I think about what, what did women experience on a daily intimate level in war when they were expected On the battlefield, they might be soldiers, but what happens when they come back to their tents and into the camp? Um, And it's a question that I explore with Aster and also with Hirut in a different way. You know, Aster is the wife of a nobleman, Kidana, who was head of the military. But this marriage that had its own tensions before the war um, had its tensions during the war. And that doesn't end. And part of those tensions had to were, you know, centering around Aster wanting to be something besides a wife, mm-hmm, which is absolutely. the way that her life has been defined. And Hirut wanting to be something besides a maid to Aster. Uh, so within between men and women, there are tensions, but between the women there were tensions based on on class, based on social standing. And those are the things that Made this book very interesting for me to write because I had questions and that was why I wrote this book, not because I had answers. Um, But the place of women is um, in many ways contradictory and complex because they were fit into a system that is masculine and they were seen through the lens that through a lens that is masculine. But I wondered how they would begin to define themselves if they broke out of those parameters. What would that look like?
0: I love the idea of, of writing because you have questions. Um, it feels so, sort of like the same way that I, I approach um, writing, research writing. You know, you don't come to it with all of the answers at all, you have to figure it out along the way. And I think that's a beautiful way to. to to try and explore your own history as well. Um, You have to then actively go out and find these these answers and these gaps, and it's so purposeful. And then that figure who who is in that void, in in that black space behind those two warriors that that you've pointed out, that is the character that that broke and sort of molded my heart while reading this. That's Hiru um, in many ways. And I... (laughs) Well, to come back to Hiru, I, I just wanted to um, to ask you about the process of then of then exploring and writing this book because, as I know, your last book was Beneath the Lion's Gaze, which came out about ten years ago, and so this has been about a, a decade long um, process for you, and and how has that been for you as a writer, the patience required to, to sit with that work and, and not rush yourself to finish it in, in sort of a, a much quicker time period? Or how do you get around the frustration maybe of, of knowing that this is still not done yet? <laughs> You've just got that that new information about your grandma and you have to rethink all of this because this isn't the book that is, is the finished version that you want. How, if, I suppose if there are people watching who are writers who are kind of dealing with that sort of the pressures of time or feeling like there needs to be a very distinct start and end period when writing a novel uh, or like a pati- particular time scale versus this 10 year period that you sat with. What kind of advice would you give to them? And how did you, how did you handle that, that, that decade of, of working?
1: Yeah, you know that's a really good question. Maybe the first way I can, I can answer that is, if you look right behind me, um, you'll see two images. There's also, I have a wall covered with, with photographs from um, the '30s, and of of the Ethiopian War, the war in Ethiopia, and. Um, i kept these i still have them here i kept them around my desk and if you can see this guy looks like he's staring right at me as i'm writing he is looking over my shoulder this young girl is looking literally over my shoulder as i'm writing and i've often said that i wrote this story this book completely surrounded by ghosts um They are here, they were here. Uh, The the photographs were symbolic. And so I felt in many ways that this, the writing of this story was an act of responsibility towards the dead, Um, but not only to the dead, but to those who are not yet born. Because in order to understand who we are right now, we have to understand what happened before us, but what's the possibility of what could happen later if we do nothing? Mm -hmm. And I've always, you know, archives, documentation, these are not innocent. Um, Research is not an innocent task. It's not naive. That it is, um, you know, it it often has been done in a sense to continue a kind of narrative about history that creates these voids. And if we don't know how to ask certain questions, we never know that those voids exist. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I... I had that imperative that I need to find out. I don't know all the answers. I still don't know all the answers, but what are some of the questions that I can ask about this war? Understanding that um, this war can help tell us something about today in such a way that we can help prepare the world for the people who have yet to live. Um, you know, I think Walter Benjamin said that it, Uh, you you know, decades ago that if fascism wins, not even our dead will be safe from the enemy because the enemy will reconstruct what the dead were in order to continue a present and create a new kind of future Mm -hmm. that upholds that enemy. Um, So I saw this task of writing as a way, as a responsibility towards the dead and the not living yet. as a way to to speak to these ghosts, um, and tell them that I'm listening, and I tell them, teach me how to hear, teach me how to listen, so I can find a way to let you you know to for you to be heard. Um, I think this is one of the reasons the book took so long, but the patience that I had came because periodically, when I really thought that I would not get this done, that this book was impossible. It was an impossible task I had set myself and I had set myself to fail. Um, Something would happen, a small breakthrough would come. And I would say, okay, if I can do this paragraph okay, maybe I can do this page okay. Let me just do this. And then maybe this chapter might work. So it was a constant process. I mean, I think most writers will tell you this is what I really, this is what creativity is. It is always running into yourself and then trying to run past yourself. Um, You catch up with yourself, you better keep going. And that was the one thing I would always say is this where you are or can you go a little bit further? I actually, well, okay, I don't know if you can see this. I've had this for 10 years on my desk. It's here still. It's a tiny thing. Um, It says, give yourself space to fail. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: And I wrote it really small because we're writers and we're ironic, right? So um, (laughs) I, I put it here 10 years ago, the sticky note, sticky part of it no longer works. It's just stuck in between in my computer. And I looked at that every day as well because you have that act of being willing to fail means that you're always on the precipice. You're always pushing yourself to the edge. You're looking over and saying, maybe I can take a step further. Um, and those moments which were but were part of those moments that kept me writing, but also this idea that um, there is no justice for the dead without a responsibility to their stories which are our stories, which is our future. Um, and that kept me centered in addition to these people up here.
0: <laughs> I mean, we could talk for ages about the concept of, of failure and success and, and what it actually means from, I suppose, a creative standpoint, but maybe I'll save that <laughs> for later because that's just such a huge, it's such a huge topic. Um, what we count as our personal failures and, and and small, even if they're written really small on a piece of a piece of card, um, what is a small failure? And what's a big failure? But I would love to um, to just quickly go back to pick up on that word responsibility a little bit and and ask you, you know, in terms of historical fiction, um, there's that responsibility for a writer to to bring these stories out and to to. To do exactly as you're saying um honor the dead and and those to come is is that a responsibility that is specific to historical fiction or do you think that's the responsibility of of all writers of fiction in some way
1: well i think it's it's a responsibility of writers it's all but it's also a responsibility of, of thinkers of readers um of people who uh who are critics um you know it, it's Our engagement with texts, our engagement with art, our engagement with thoughts that sometimes may make us uncomfortable, may make us angry, our engagement with them, I think um, creates a foundation for what a possible future might look like. So it is the responsibility of writers. It is, you know, this is a responsibility of fiction. Um, How do we care for, how do we claim those who have gone before us and those who are yet to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think for readers, it's the same. Um, it is actually just a human responsibility. And unfortunately we're living in a time where things have become so, so much centered on what's happening right now and what I can get out of my neighbor or this society or this, what, what advantage can I take from this moment um we've we've lost sight of um, the idea of a collectivity, collectivity, of, of, of a community. Um, and I if you know, this pandemic, if there's anything it's shown us is how interconnected we are. Um, mm. And quite literally and quite physically, this virus connected us all. We saw how one person moving from one place um, to another suddenly bound groups of people together in a
0: similar fate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's beautiful, by the way. Thank you for that answer. And um you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm I'm curious to know about this this process of revising the book and, and updating different bits um, with this this new lens that you were looking through this time period with. And I'm wondering, are there characters that that we've read in the book, that we're reading in the book, who perhaps weren't there before or perhaps weren't big parts of the story before were there concepts that you then later thought i need to clarify and i i want to shine a light on i guess in addition to it centering women but um but addition in addition to that were there were there ideas in the final book that maybe you hadn't focused on before in in previous versions that now is kind of central to this to the narrative
1: yeah, I think that at a moment where I I knew that I had been in the process of revising and it wasn't I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't sure what was what was missing, but I didn't know I didn't know what to do, and I was I was just sitting at my desk and um, I do the thing that. You know, writers say it's it's working, even though you don't. It doesn't look like you're working. and're just staring at the ceiling, and um, this thought came into my head, and it said, "The dead are angry, and they want to be heard." And I I I wrote that down, and it took a moment um, for me to think about. Well, what does that mean? What, who, what, how? What do you mean they need to be heard? It took a few days of just sitting, ruminating on that. And then I said, oh my God, they really do want to be heard. And this is uh, a reason that this chorus started forming, that this is this voice that demanded the space to speak. And as soon as I said, all right, here we go, let's let here, take it, take some pages, do it. it broke open the entire story and it, it, everything, all the parameters exploded, everything that I thought I was doing just no longer worked. And it was, um, I had, I started all over again. Um, but I, and that's part of why it took so long, but it, it, there was an urgency to that, that, that made me think, you can't let this go. This is something that needs to happen. Um, and uh, I, that, it worked, I think. Yeah, it worked. It took a while.
0: These additions of the the chorus and the descriptions of the photographs that they're, they're some of the my favourite aspects of the book. You know, we get these entirely different um, lenses through which to see this this time period and through through different people's eyes. And I, I think that was and the, also the way that the ghosts keep reappearing um, to the side of of different characters. I thought that was absolutely stunning. And uh, one of the, yeah, in, in addition to the chorus, you know, we've got these different vignettes of, of the photograph and one of the characters that is, is quite central to the story, um, Ettore, he, he is fascinating to me because the way that you write him, it represents, to me, the detachment between the artist and the muse. And the, it's very deliberate detachment to sort of dehumanise um, the subject, in order to create your art or create your work, um, and I'd, I'd love for you to, to talk to us a bit about your intentions with the photographer and, and sort of what it means to the meaning of the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Maybe we can put up um, the next photo, and then um, and uh, just very briefly, this is uh, this is an image. It was uh, speaking of photographs and et this is something that. I envisioned he might have taken of Hirut, which feels like a very innocent photograph. This was—I I don't know who this young young woman is, a uh, young girl—but I imagined Hirut like that. But if we move to the next image, um, you know, whereas that first image, it looks innocuous, it looks naive. It's a you look at it and you say that there's no harm in that image. Um, but this one, this photograph, uh, which was really that what got me thinking about Ettore and his presence in this book, um, and the presence of photographers in, in wards, uh in colonial enterprises. Um, this photograph was one that was pivotal for me because you see the photographer's shadow quite literally. Um I've always thought of Ettore as as, the, as, as someone who, who, who ruled, not the light, but the shadows. Um, you know, and the, the title, the shadow king, that shadow thing is also partly a nod to these, these people who rule the dark, who move within those places. And um, you see in this photograph uh, the presence of the photographer the fact that this is not a casual image, this is not an innocent photograph. This is a photograph that, was, that is as much, it's not about the man that's there, the East African man who's standing there. This is an image that is saying something about the Italian. Mm. The prop is the African man. Mm. He is a metaphor. For their ability to stand there in front of this man on his land in his country and remain unharmed Mm -hmm. and that photographer is transmitting that but he is also directing that shot and i um this this photograph guided me through the scenes with Ettore because Ettore and his camera are not innocent The photography was used, is used, has been used as a weapon. Um, Ever since it crossed the West and started moving into the global South, it has been a weapon as brutal as bullets. And these images that have been sent uh, back from these different countries have helped to create a narrative of a certain group of people or a certain kind of history Um, that really needed the help of the West in order to fully exist. Mm. And this image for me really spoke to, to that. Um, I've always, I've, I have stared at this for so long, but um, I, I've been collecting photographs that these soldiers took in Ethiopia, in East Africa, um, and some, in some parts of Libya as well, uh, when they were there. And you see again and again, the constructed narratives. And um, we don't know what all the voids are because some of them have been so completely erased, but I do believe the photographs give us a clue.
0: I absolutely, I agree entirely with what you're saying about the complicity of the photographer, and and we saw this, we saw this really really salient example quite recently with um, news reporters reporting on on refugees coming across the channel, and and filming that, and you know that I don't know if you saw it, but that that clip of of one of the news reporters pointing out that this boat, their boat is sinking, and you know instead of doing what would be humane saying get on my boat you know we've got space and this is not sinking yeah. is to to point a camera at, at the crisis and I yeah there's just we I don't think that we criticise that position enough because we have an idea that that photography or filming or any kind of recording of the media is objective in some kind of way, and it isn't because Correct. you're a person in a place with other people. Um, and that's, I've just, yeah, Ettero for me was was an amazingly interesting character. And, and you can tell me if I'm way off with this idea as well, but um, the idea of the shadow also brought me into thinking of the way that you... You brought in the fa- fascism that was happening in Europe at the time as well, but it wasn't ne- it wasn't necessarily central to this story because we're in Ethiopia. But it was still there, looming um, in the background in terms of what it meant for Ettore, what it meant for the Ethiopians um, and the Italians in Ethiopia. Um, and I'm just I, I'm just wondering if that for you is is a concept that you wanted to focus on, or if that came later, if, that, if you felt like you needed to be specific about um, what would then be World War II, um, mm-hmm. or if you couldn't have possibly written this book without mentioning um, everything that was going on with Hitler and the Nazis um, back in Europe?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you ask that because um, this war, between Italy and Ethiopia is considered by many historians to be the first real battle of World War II. That what happened in Ethiopia was setting up um, a series of alliances that would then play out through World War II. Mussolini would eventually align with Hitler, you know, then you would have the allied forces, um, Britain and France, uh, the League of Nations that had initially said, give Ethiopia to Mussolini. Um, We don't want him to really move over to Hitler. Let's just placate him. Uh, And so maybe he won't cause any trouble, and he won't, Italy won't um, make an alliance with Nazi Germany. Let's give him Ethiopia. So Ethiopia was a sacrificial lamb in this case. It didn't work out that way. You cannot appease a bully and think that he's going to do what you want. this it 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 felt necessary for me to incorporate some of some of that backstory and I didn't do a lot um but it was it was part of the framework of this and um I, I think Ettore is also the one thing we could mention is he's he's also Italian Jewish and his position was is was precarious as the war continued in Ethiopia. Um, and I was very curious about what happens in the case of those people who were in East Africa fighting for Italy, enforcing racist segregation laws one year, and then the next year finding themselves victim to the same kind of racism, you know, to anti-semitism. What does that mean? How does someone negotiate those two things? How? What's the aftermath of all of that? Which is one of the questions I've, I, I'm curious about with conflict. What happens after? And, um, you know, for those who survive, which is why the book begins and ends in 1974, because I wanted to look at the consequences of all of this.
0: Mm, and a potential answer is that you can't negotiate fascism. You know, there's always going to be somebody else that's that's on in line to be oppressed and Mm -hmm. just the way that you used um these characters to make that point was uh, was yeah absolutely stunning um and I need to I need to stop nodding my head so much I'm gonna give give myself a neck ache but you can tell I love this book (laughs) um I wanted to I wanted to ask you a little bit about the resources that you look to um, when you were writing a book like this. I mean, there is so much history in there, but there's also, you know, the, your own family story and there's all these archives that you've used. And, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about that process of, of resources.
1: Yeah, you know, I... Um initially i was looking through archives i lived in rome in order to do research in the fascist archives to look at in the libraries and the one thing i realized very quickly is that the documents that i that i was looking at you know saved from 1935 through the 40s were things that had been approved by the fascists you know this is saved. this is why history is never neutral the archives are never neutral they're not innocent um and i decided Early on, um, I this is not. I'm, I want to know the story of the story that's not told, the things that nobody wanted us to learn about. Um, and I started speaking to friends of mine who were Italian. I started asking if I could look at family photographs, you know, photographs from soldiers who had been based there. I went to flea markets. Um, In across Italy and every flea market I would go to, there was always a fascist table and I would go Mm -hmm. to those tables and I would ask to see colonial era photographs and I would, you know, letters, diaries, anything I could find, I was looking through and through those personal artifacts, the photographs that soldiers took when they were relaxing, when they were, you know, Joking around sometimes, you know, on a field, sometimes with prisoners, those photographs that didn't need to be censored because they were not going to be published in newspapers, helped me create a fuller story. Um, you know, then I would talk to family members of mine. I, I did research in Ethiopia. I was looking for as much as I could there as well. Um, and through that, um, I was piecing together some of what archives and documents may not be able to tell fully. But, you know, speaking of resources, I have to say this, that um, at some point uh, when I was in the middle of, of writing this book, I was in, uh, at Oxford and um, I knew that a photographer that had been based in Ethiopia during the war had taken photographs and left his estate uh, that estate to a uh, museum at Oxford. And I emailed the curators because I also knew that one of my relatives, a great uncle, had been a guide of this photographer at some point. And I just was curious to see if there were any photographs taken of my, of my great uncle. Uh, this great uncle was like my father's, my father's father because his father had died. So he raised mm-hmm. my father. And the man who was his bro- like his brother, my uncle, lived in the UK. And so I told him I'm going to go to this museum, and he said, I said I'm going to look for your father's photograph. I went there, and um, one of the things I told the curators there might have been misspellings and names, which is something that colonial it happened all the time. You see colonial records, things are misspelled, and this is how history sometimes drops through the cracks. Um, And sure enough, through different spelling variations, I did find a photograph of my great uncle in that museum. And it was one of the more emotional moments of this whole research thing, because all of a sudden I'm looking at him and I see the army that he has around him, and I can pick out my father's brothers who have my face, you know, who have my father's face. and I took this, the curators were very kind, you know, and they let me have a, a JPEG of this image. And I showed it to my uncle. And my uncle said, he got very emotional. And He said, no one in our family, Maaza, has ever seen a photograph of my father at this age, in this war. Mm-hmm. And this is family history now of mine that is in this museum at Oxford. And I, it, constantly, history is not history, history is my family. You know, and as soon as we start breaking down that concept of history as this huge impersonal monolith, but it's actually the stories of individuals and communities and their families, that those are human beings in those images and that those human beings created children and those grandchildren are walking the streets like me Um, it gave me a different sense of, um, of what these archives are, what history is, whose history is this? If my family photograph is in a museum and I had never seen it, and the son of that man never saw it until I went there. So it makes me think about what Walter Benjamin said, you know, not even our dead are safe. If we don't claim that responsibility um, to the dead, but also to the unborn, um, that's where the justice lies, is in the respect for them.
0: And how do you reconcile that placement of that image, uh, of that history that belongs to you and your family in somewhere as far as Oxford? Um, Is there a, I mean, do you know what I, how do what would you would you like to have that image, you know, in your own possession, for example?
1: I would like my uncle to have that photograph of his father, but mm-hmm. it's not his, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was taken by a European man who then bequeathed that to a museum, mm-hmm. and the the curators were kind enough to say, any way that we can work with you, we will, um, and I'm very grateful for that. They, you know, I think they understood all the complexities, but. Whose history is that, and who owns this? Um, This is the story of museums with looted items. This is the story that we have got. Museums are not neutral. You know, these are not neutral spaces. History is not neutral. But that, and it, it just it reminds me again um, that what we're fighting now. You know, all of these protests, these uprisings. They are fighting for, of course, the present, but also for a future that will be inclusive um, and for a past that is recognized um, for the complexities and the depth that it truly contained. We're not just fighting for this moment. Um, Yeah, that's why these museums with their carefully curated uh, narratives of history uh we have to continue to talk about this and push against uh some of those yeah, <laughs> some absolutely. of those uh
0: histories and that's why why books like yours are so so vital um because they do that so brilliantly and um i'm i'd love to bring in a couple of the audience questions at the moment that we've had because some of them relate to kind of what we've been saying and and what you've already kind of touched upon for example um, one person has asked the question, uh, do you have any advice on researching, um, lesser known walls? Uh, so specifically about maybe your access to those archives, how you went about, um, advice on how you went about getting, um, getting through those walls and, and seeing those images and reading those words.
1: Yeah, I would, I would recommend if there is any, if there's a way to speak to people who are descendants of those who mm-hmm. lived, but that is a really good way to approach that. I mean, we're living during uh, when museums or libraries might be really hard to get to, but librarians to me are these heroic figures. They are the unsung heroes um, behind my book and and I think almost every historical novel that's written. I send emails to them and the kinds of information I get is beyond anything that I would imagine. So I would recommend reaching out, uh, send emails to librarians, you'd be surprised. And I'm getting on Zoom with one tomorrow. So everybody's learning to work around some of these restrictions that we have, but speaking to people who have family stories from that time, speaking to the women, Um, who may not think that their stories are history, and yet they are. Uh, I often, what if I had spoken to my mother earlier, if I knew what to ask? Would I have received more information, you know, about my great grandmother much earlier? So I would say talk to people, but librarians too are fantastic.
0: Knowing what to ask can be the first hurdle for for any kind of thing. Um, And we love librarians. (laughs) So that's (laughs) brilliant advice. Um, I have a question here uh, that asks if you could talk about the importance of memory and mourning in the novel. And The Emperor learns Simonides' memory technique at a young age, and that technique came out of remembering people's position prior to their death. It feels like every character is mourning someone or something from the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the idea of how we remember, how we remember those who have gone before us, it, it, I mean, it's central to the book, but how we remember and how we speak of those who have passed helps to establish a collective memory. Um, mm-hmm. If we can sit around in a family gathering and begin to unearth stories even within our family, um, it and it, it just... it it strengthens the possibility, Um, it strengthens the way the the possibility for change within that family, within maybe eventually a community. But um, I really think that the ways that we speak of ourselves, which means of those who have come before us and those who will come, um, helps to create uh, and develop a collective memory within the community. And I, I was very, I, I was very invested in that in in questions of how we remember, because even Hirut, who is the central character in the book, there are things she doesn't want to remember, and the chorus comes in and says, "Wait a minute, um, we have to tell you this, even though she doesn't want us to, because mm-hmm. even those things have to be spoken of."
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Maza. Um, this next audience question is asking how your book is received in Ethiopia. Um, if you if you visit and are you, <laughs> I like this. Are you revered as a hero for revealing <laughs> this part more?
1: <laughs> not quite. <laughs> I think the book is not yet in Ethiopia. People have it if if people um, bring it over when when they came, but all the plans for distribution, all of that, uh, just kind of it froze. Once this pandemic hit, it mm-hmm. became it was impossible to to get just the very tangible logistical realities of distribution happening. But um, I'm in talks with having it uh, there, and I hope that there will be a launch as soon as things open up.
0: That's pretty good. It feels almost kind of wrong that we've got it before people in each have had a chance to Absolutely. read it. So Yeah. Um, I'm I'm excited for for that process to happen for you. Um, Thank you. Another person has asked, excuse me, um, what was something that you wanted to have included in the book, but didn't end up being part of the finished ah. version?
1: <laughs> I think oh writers always have that, that is such a good, okay, you know what? I will say this, The okay. I don't think I've ever said this before, but the book was a thousand pages and I cut 500. So there are many, many, many things that are not in the book, many things. I cannot think of all of them, but when it came to editing, I had to be absolutely ruthless with myself um, and center this book on Hirut. Everything begins in the home with every single one of these characters. It begins in the home. It doesn't go much farther than the home. Uh, even if we're talking about war, so um, everything else left, <laughs> and somebody said at some point maybe you could make another book of it. Like I, it's time to move on to book three.
0: You may be in another <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it's what 425 pages at the moment, and when I finished it, I had to lie down on the floor. <laughs> Me too,
1: me too, Jess, yeah. me too, trust me. I
0: can't imagine what, what we would have had to do after a thousand pages, so maybe go on a holiday. <laughs> or actually fall asleep. Um, <laughs> thank you for that question. Thank you for all the audience yeah. questions so far, by the way, everybody. Yeah, yeah. They're great. We've got a few more, um, which, which are brilliant. And this next one, it says, um, it seems that the notion of bodies is a very important component, component of your work. Uh, I'm reminded of Svetlana Alexevich, I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong, uh, his work, um, the unwomanly face of war about experiences of ex-Soviet women during World War II. Could you speak more to the influence which the female body at war has had uh, on your family and on contemporary Ethiopian women? It's a big question. I think. Yeah, so the body, well, we
1: can speak about I mean, we can, this is a whole other session. I mean, that's a fantastic question. But if we think about war, Svetlana Alexievich's The Unwomanly Face of War is a fantastic book and I I would recommend it to anyone. Um, Reading that book, looking at uh, the stories of women in war, not only in my book, but historically, and we can go as far back as Homer, uh, you know, uh, we can go, um, however back, the one thing that, that comes up again and again is that women have always been contested territory in war. When an enemy goes into a village, goes into a city, one of the first things that they do is rape women. And they rape the women to harm the men and to destroy a kind of future that that place, that location, that family, those men might imagine. And it's done through the bodies of women. Uh, The bodies of women are landscape, their territory to be conquered, but they're also trophies to be taken. I mean, you see that in the Iliad where Helen of Troy is renowned for her beauty, but that beauty a, you know, Paris kidnapped her and here comes the Trojan War and men men die over this. Um, but women have been trophies and territory. They've been camouflaged for the cruelties of men. And one of the things that um, I realized very quickly is when these Italian soldiers, when colonial forces, when, when Westerners would come, would go into countries in the global South and photograph women um, in suggestive and sexual ways, it was often a camouflage for another form of violence that was happening behind the scenes with that, you know, against that community. If a woman is being photographed naked in a place by an enemy combatant, you can imagine what else is happening to everyone else in that community and what might will happen to her after that photograph is taken. So the bodies, are symbols, they're metaphors, but we forget sometimes that these are human beings also. And uh, through Hirut, I wanted to consider what happens when a body, this woman with this body that has been both territory and trophy, says, wait a minute, I'm still here Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I'm pissed. What happens then? And that's, uh, I wanted to explore with her. Those stories that uh,
0: women don't often want to talk about, and perhaps at this point, it's it's a good point to mention that um, there is a lot of very explicit, very visual descriptions of sexual violence against women in the book. And I think I think about this a lot when I read when when re- women have written these kinds of scenes. Um, were you able to sort of take care of yourself through writing those those chapters and, and those parts of the book? Because rape is not an objective thing to write about it's 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 not it's not like describing the this layout of the background or the landscape it's it's deeply personal and um yeah how how did you find writing writing those those descriptions of of what both Hiro and Astor and, and everybody else in the book sort of went went through
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting that that's a really good question. And when I think back on that, um, I think the chorus helped me because the chorus steps in periodically, and the chorus, you know, is is angry, but they're also they're also disruptive. And they would disrupt my own process because there were times when I might only want to focus on Hirut or I might only want to focus on Aster. And they're like, "Eh, we're gonna take a look at Kidana here. We're gonna take a look at this other person. Let's take a moment here because there's somebody else in the room and we need to consider that too. Um, They they helped because if it were up to me, maybe those scenes would have gone differently but I was really paying attention to these characters but also to that chorus.
0: Thank you, thank you for that Mazza. I think that idea that there are multiple people involved is is so crucial to to highlight when you're talking about violence of any kind um it's all in the language and um and you do that beautifully in these descriptions And um, we've got about four minutes left uh, and we've got a Lot of wonderful questions um, up here, but um, so we might not be able to go through all of them. But the next one I'm gonna swing you away, Marza, uh, is it's it, it reads my, my granddad was one of the soldiers who was there and took many photographs. Um, I still have. Uh, I would like to tell you that he was truly sorry he did not want to be there at all, but he had to. He always used to speak to me about the beautiful and friendly Ethiopians, the landscape and how he felt this war was totally wrong. It's not quite a question in there, um, but I suppose the idea that there are people, you know, obviously, as you say, there are people still walking around um, who have these connections with their families to that history still, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, I'm just looking for one with a question mark. <laughs> um, do you think the future of conflicts might be altered by telling these kinds of um alternative stories of conflict and war, um, but also including the aspect of female leadership. I think this is an interesting question because people often, some people have referred to this book as being feminist, a feminist book. And they they sometimes respond to the idea of war and violence as as saying, ah, but if a woman was in this position, we wouldn't have these kinds of things. and sort of, how do you respond to that idea of, of women taking up these spaces and that idea of what might be different or would anything mm. be different?
1: Well, I think that um, as a very, very good friend of mine who is also a writer, a brilliant writer, Mona El-Tahawi says, you know, it's very possible for women to be foot soldiers of the patriarchy. It's very possible for women to act the same kinds of cruelties on other women, um, on other uh, on men, uh, in the way that a man would. Um, being a woman doesn't necessarily make you automatically uh, someone who is of the alternative, so to speak. So I think the question here is: how do we disrupt uh, How do we disrupt the inclinations towards aggressive conflict? Mm. Um, What can the past teach us about war so that we begin to understand the very complicated complicated realities that make up war? I think we've thought of war in terms of the monuments that have been left behind, the monuments that create a kind of grandiose and very blurry, hazy, sense of what conflict does and what it does to people who have been a part of it in one way or another Um, but if we speak of these stories um, of women of what actually happens within the, the within conflict if we can complicate those stories it might make us more hesitant to charge forward because we understand the real consequences. War never ends. It's one of the questions that a character asks of mine at the very end, what war ever really ends? You can declare victory, but you will have thousands of people walking around and for decades they are still in that war. And we've seen it in the United States, those soldiers who have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, you see it everywhere. You've seen it in in Vietnam.
0: And I think that's a brilliant place to sort of leave it here um, before before we, we end this talk, that idea that, you know, these, these things, these repetitions of war are, are going to keep coming back if we don't completely change our mentalities, as you say, about conflict and about the way that people are treated and ownership and placement and land and all of these things that... inspire war um thank you so much for joining us thank Thank you so much much.
1: thank you everyone thank you i urge you you all to get a copy of
0: this amazing book um thank you for thank you again thank you
1: thanks so much jess it was a pleasure
0: (laughs) thank you for listening find out more about the edinburgh international book festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on facebook twitter and instagram at edbookfest You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.